Welcome to the final installment in our series, Moses, Muhammad, and Marks. And the series is so named because I wanted to really take a look at some of the worldviews or religions or ideologies or stories that are influencing our world. You know, my contention in this series is we make sense of our world, the big questions in life, we fit things together and make some sense of consistency out of it by the stories that we tell ourselves. And so I've used the word worldview, religion, because all of these that I'm talking about have all the traditional aspects of a religion uh, and worldview, ideology, et cetera, all those kind of synonymously in this. But basically what I wanna look at is the way people are coming at world events today. And I think what you've seen so far is that there are some irreconcilable differences in the various points of view that are impacting our modern world. Let me do a quick recap of where we have been. Uh, we've done, by the way, I realize that we've just done an overview of these belief systems and we could dive a lot deeper. But in the interest of our time frame, I wanted to give you the general narrative and enough background to make sense of it. So for example, the Jewish story is basically this. God created us in his image. We are unique and valuable as, as individuals. Book of Genesis, for example. Humanity rebelled against God God called Abraham and he believed God and was credited with righteousness. So the Christian worldview, Jewish worldview shared this portion that we were created in God's image, we are unique and valuable. There is such a thing as truth and justice, there is absolute truth. That we rebelled from God and broke that relationship, we sinned. And then as God begins to find a way to reconcile us to him, he chose a man named Abraham, and Abraham responded in faith or trust with God. God then chose for himself descendants of Abraham, the 12 tribes of Israel, the Jewish people, to be holy, meaning to be set apart, to be obedient through observance of the Torah. Torah traditionally understood as the law of Moses, the 613 commandments contained in the the first five books of the Hebrew scriptures, what Christians call the Old Testament, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, 613 commands that are the standard for the Jews to live up to and to be set apart as a beacon for the world. And so the last part of the Jewish story is the Jewish people are a guide and a beacon for the world, pointing to justice and reconciliation, whether through an individual Messiah or through a messianic age of peace. When we looked at it, we looked at the different uh, major groupings of Judaism and certain differences in belief. But essentially, this is the Jewish story of making sense of life as God's chosen people trying to bring the world back to God through justice and reconciliation. Christian story, similar in the beginning. God created us in his image. We're unique, we're valuable. The whole idea of human rights, the whole idea of human dignity comes from this portion of the Christian Jewish story. We rebelled against God in Christian theology, that's sin. We broke the relationship, the covenant with God and with each other. Call this the fallen nature of humanity or fallen humanity, a sense that this world is not the way it was intended to be. And that's a unique way of looking at the world. And we need reconciliation with God to be whole, to be authentic, to be all that we were created to be. In other words, we cannot be who God created us to be without the relationship with him. Because he loves us, God reconciled us through Jesus the Messiah, through Jesus Christ on the cross. This is the gospel. Our old self is dead and we live as new people in surrender and obedience to Christ. So not only do you have our existential problem, if you will, 
an explanation of how we got where we are, you also have a solution to that problem. The gospel is the solution to humanity's deepest problem of sin and uh, distance, if you will, a broken relationship with God. And then Christian, the Christian story then, by, by implication, believes that God is the author of truth and justice. There is such a thing as right and wrong. There are things that are just, no matter what the circumstances, there is a God who is the author of absolute truth. So, Christian story in some senses uh, departs from or extends the Jewish story. They're a little, they have common beginnings, but they're very different as you play those stories out in terms of the view of the world. Third story we looked at was the modern secular story. And when I say secular, I mean temporal, materialistic, if you will. Uh, secular has to do with present day, present time. Not all religions accept a supreme being. That's not the definition of a religion. You have some religions uh, like Buddhism that don't have a supreme being per se. This secular story not only does not have a supreme being, it does not have anything other than you can see. Materialism, what can be seen, everything is caused by what can be seen. There's nothing beyond this universe, this life, this temporal existence that we have. That's what I mean basically by secular story. The basis of this secular story as it's coalesced into a, an ideology or a coherent story to make sense of the world and draw value judgments. And this is the story behind a lot of the things happening in America that seems so at odds with the Jewish story or the Christian story because it is a very different kind of story. It's built on the idea of what I call a social Marxism or a cultural Marxism. Don't misunderstand that to mean that the people that believe this today necessarily understand the connections to Karl Marx or necessarily espouse the economic theories of Karl Marx, although that is very typical. What it is, is it, it basically takes Karl Marx's view of history, his view of the world and the forces that shape our world and play those out into our daily lives. In th this example, the modern secular story says that we each belong to intersecting groups of oppressors or oppressed and that our identity is found in our group. Karl Marx talked about class struggle, the people that owned the factories, for example, and the people that worked in the factories. They were economic classes. They were social classes. The modern secular story takes that further into our cultural, the culture, that's why it's called cultural Marxism, to the point where all of us belong to certain groups. We may not be factory owners, factory workers, but we are black or white or Hispanic or male or female or cisgendered or transgendered or et cetera, et cetera. Just continue to proliferate groups of identities. These group identities can become very granular. Well, we all belong to, according to this worldview, different groups. Some groups have power, and the groups that have power in our culture, in our society, organize all of the institutions of our society to support their supremacy or their power or their privilege. There are groups that don't have power. And so this is the way this view, this story characterizes the world. It can, everything can be seen through the lens of these identity groups and how they interact. And we all are part of a groups and we are either part of groups that are powerful, therefore we are oppressing other groups, or we are part of groups that are being oppressed and need to take power. Second tenet is this, is that conflict between these groups is inevitable and it is necessary that the only way 
for groups that are not in power to get their just rewards in society, to get what they desire in society is to overthrow the oppressive order and the institutions that are built around it. Truth claims are instruments of oppression. This is very different than what we just saw in the Jewish story and the Christian story. Both of those stories believe there is such a thing as transcendent truth, absolute truth, meaning there are certain things that have been true throughout time, are true now, and are true regardless of the color of my skin or my uh, gender or anything else, the nation in which I was born. There are just certain truths that apply to everything. In this worldview, seeing everything as competing, intersecting groups, all statements of truth are simply attempts to gain power over someone else. That's why when you listen to this worldview expressed in current events, you'll hear statements like, the facts are not as important as the moral truth. Uh, we may not have facts to support this, but this position is morally right. And so truth claims are considered to be instruments of oppression. Justice is whatever serves the group. In the Jewish and Christian story, there is such a thing because there is a God, an objective outside standard, an authoritative standard of truth, justice, beauty, right, wrong, etc., that there is such a thing as justice with a capital J. In this worldview, there is no transcendent truth. Truth is merely what serves the purpose of your group. For example, Friedrich Nietzsche, one of the fathers of, of this movement, basically, said there are no facts, there are only interpretations. What is he saying? Is that a true statement? Well, no, actually it's not. If you're a scientist, you definitely don't believe that statement. But what is he saying? He's basically saying that, that facts depend on how you look at them and what group you're in as to what they mean for you. That's called standpoint theory, or depending on where you are, that fact can change. Now again, thank goodness that our medical researchers don't believe that, but from a social perspective, that's the point of view. Justice is whatever serves the group. What is just for one person is not necessarily just for another person because they may come from very different groups. Maybe one is an oppressor and one is someone who has been oppressed or is being oppressed. In which case, the same behavior may be just in one case and unjust in another. And finally, morality serves the interest of the group. The idea of right and wrong is also cast in this backdrop of power relationships. And so for me to say to you, whoever you are, if I were to say to you that this is the way this system works and you shouldn't kill other people, and that's my morality, that may be me as an oppressor, for example, suppose I'm part of an oppressive class, trying to put a morality on you that you do not share. In your view, killing someone might be very justified in order to gain your freedom. Malcolm X, for example, was quoted as saying, and part, kind of part of his philosophy is the idea that freedom never comes peacefully. And so all of these things, truth, justice, morality, are cast into this backdrop of intersecting power relationships between groups. So a very different point of view. Well, that gets us caught up a little bit. I wanna look at the last point of view that's making a uh, big impact in our world and plays into these others in a very complicated way, but very interesting way. And that is the story of Islam or the Muslim story. I'll go ahead and tell you the story because we're there at this point. And then I wanna go back and give you a little bit of the history of where Islam came from. And I wanna highlight two things want to highlight Islam's posture towards Judaism and then some of the tensions within Islam today and where they came from 
then I wanna take those two things and apply them to the modern world. So first of all, the Muslim story. Muslims accept the Old Testament, the Hebrew scriptures as coming from God. They accept the New Testament, the Christian scriptures as coming from God. They do not accept that everything written in there came from God. Muslims believe that some of the things in the New Testament and Old Testament have been changed or corrupted and they are not true accounts of what happened. But in general, they understand the kinship of the Jewish scriptures, Christian scriptures as precursors to the Muslim scriptures. So you're gonna see this start out very similarly. Uh, Muslims believe that God created us in his image, Allah Genesis 1, we rebelled against God. God called Abraham, Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him with righteousness. Here's where we depart. God chose for himself a people, descendants of Abraham. Not the 12 tribes of Israel though, but the 12 tribes of Arabia through Abraham's son, Ishmael. Ishmael's descendants are the inheritors of God's promises to Abraham. Let me stop there for a second, just remind you, in Genesis 12, Genesis 15, when God chooses Abraham, Abraham goes to the promised land, in those days called the land of Canaan, today called the nation of Israel, basically. So Abraham goes there and God makes this promise. He said, Abraham, I'm gonna turn you into a great nation, meaning you'll have many, many, many descendants. He had no children at this time. And, I'm going to give your descendants a land, a homeland, the promised land, the nation of Israel. And I'm gonna bless all of the nations of the earth through you. Now in the Jewish story, the understanding there is that Abraham had two children. He had Ishmael by a maidservant named Hagar when his wife Sarah could not get pregnant. This was not an uncommon thing in those days and then they raised the boy as their own. But God said, no, I told you specifically that Sarah would have a child. And so about the time Ishmael, first son, is 13 years old, sure enough, Sarah uh, conceives and bears a child and they name him Isaac. And so for Jews, Isaac is the child that God promised. He is the inheritor of those promises to his father, Abraham and he is the forefather of the 12 tribes of Israel, the Jews. Muslims believe, however, that since Ishmael was born first, he is the inheritor of that promise. We'll go on down through history till we get to Muhammad, speak more about him in a minute, but Muhammad, who is the descendant of Abraham and of Ishmael, is the last and greatest prophet. He restored the true religion of Abraham. So Judaism looks to Abraham as the first Jew, if you will, the, the father of their people through Isaac and the Jewish people. The Arabic people also look to Abraham. And as you go down through the centuries to Muhammad, Muhammad said the Jews corrupted this. In one way, they thought Isaac was the uh, inheritor of the promises and that's not right, it's Ishmael. And the Christians have corrupted the religion of Abraham because they believe in the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. They don't believe in just one God. So Muhammad wants to restore the original religion of Abraham. And so this is the Muslim story. He restored the true religion. And humans are brought into a right relationship with God by their obedience to the commands of Muhammad. Their good deeds, meaning obeying the commands of Muhammad must outweigh their bad deeds. And so this story takes a different turn, if you will. It has some common roots. I mean, it's said that Abraham is the father of the three great monotheistic religions, Judaism, Christianity, and Islam. But you'll notice that the stories depart in each case and it makes a big difference as you play it out. Well, let's go back and I wanna trace briefly but I'd like to trace the history of Islam uh, because I want you to see its relationship with Judaism and I want you to see where the two major sects of Islam come from.
So back to our family tree. So we have Abraham who lived in, we're gonna use traditional dating. So we're gonna call this 2000 BC. Has a son Ishmael when he thought that Sarah couldn't have a child, but then sure enough, she does just as God promised. And so through Isaac to Jacob, to the 12 sons of Jacob, the 12 tribes of Israel, down to Moses. Moses is 1400 BC. Again, I'm using traditional dating. Moses to David. David is 1000 BC. By the way, all of this is actually historical. And then all the way down to Jesus Christ at the beginning of, of our calendar, zero, if you will. Muslims trace their legitimacy through Ishmael. So 2000 BC has a son named Ishmael. Once Isaac is born, Ishmael is cast out. And Sarah says, the son of the slave girl will not inherit what is the son of promise. And so Ishmael is cast out. This happens around 2000 BC. The big jump from Ishmael to Muhammad, you have to remember Muhammad is 570 AD, so much later. Muhammad lived 570 years after Jesus. He was very well acquainted with the New Testament. He knew Christians, very well acquainted with the Old Testament, had very mixed but very uh, intimate relationship with Jewish people as well. And so this branch from Abraham leads to Muhammad. Muhammad then decides to restore this religion. So let's look at Muhammad's birth. So the legend has it that here in the land of Israel, that in 2000 BC, Abraham had the son Ishmael. And when Ishmael was cast out after Isaac was born, he made his way with his mother, Hagar, here, Mecca. And that Abraham visited Hagar and Ishmael. And one thing you do know from the scriptures is that Abraham loved Ishmael and he was very fond of Ishmael. In fact, one of the things that he said to God, when God said, I am gonna keep my promise to give you, make your descendants into a great nation and give them a land. And he said, Lord, could you not also bless Ishmael? And God said, I will bless him too for your sake, and he too will become the father of a great nation. But his hand will be set against all other humanity. And so God is saying, yes, for your sake, I will make him into a great nation, but this is not my promise to you. And my promise will come through Isaac and the Jewish people. And Ishmael and his descendants will in time have their hand against the other people of the world. In other words, there'll be conflict there. Well, according to this uh, tradition and according to the book of Genesis, you can tell the names of the 12 sons of Ishmael and they become the 12 tribes of Arabia. And so they inhabit this Arabian Peninsula through time and they live a tribal existence. Fast forward 30 or 2,500 years. So in 570 AD, Muhammad is born here in Mecca and he is born an orphan. He becomes orphaned very quickly. And Muhammad grows up in his uncle's house. He ends up getting married to a wealthy widow and goes into business. When he is 40 years old in 610 AD, Muhammad is on a retreat, if you will, and he went out into the desert and he was in this cave and it had troubled Muhammad greatly looking at the, the Arabic people at that time were polytheistic. There were so many gods. They worshiped the moon god. They worshiped the desert god. They worshiped all these different gods. Muhammad had a, had a feeling of the unrightness of this and he had a feeling of the unrightness of the oppression of poor people. He himself had experienced the loneliness and oppression of being an orphan. And so as he's sitting out there thinking about this, according to the Islamic story, the angel Gabriel comes to him and begins to communicate to him and begins to tell him to recite these revelations that he is getting from the angel Gabriel. 
And so he begins to go back and he begins to share these revelations. These revelations revolve around restoring the religion of Abraham. So for example, he goes back to Mecca. Mecca is a huge trading area from all the tribes, the Silk Road, all kinds of trade good come through there. Everybody's God is welcome. Everybody's money is welcome. And so he comes into that environment and he begins to preach the worship of the one true God, the God of Abraham. Needless to say, the people in Mecca, he also began to preach about treating other people well, not profiting on other people, etc. And so he begins to preach something that has a sense of the heart of God in it. And the Meccans don't like this very well. And in fact, after about 12 years of this, they kick him out. So in 622 AD, you get a big event called the Hajira, and that is the flight of Muhammad. So in 622, he has to flee Mecca to Medina because his life is in danger for the things that he is preaching in Mecca. By the way, the Muslim calendar starts at this date. So the calendar that we use, zero, is the birth of Christ. That is the event that begins our calendar. And when we say it's 2021 AD, we mean 2021 years since the birth of Christ. The Muslim calendar, although commercially, pretty much everyone uses this, that calendar, but the Muslim calendar is called AH, after the Hajira, after the flight to Medina. And so that's the zero date in the Muslim calendar. So if you're reading any Muslim literature, if you're reading any Muslim books and history, they'll be dated AH, how many years after the flight. And just to reconcile the two, the zero date in the Muslim calendar is 622 AD. That's when this event happened. So Muhammad goes to Medina and he begins to preach and he interacts with a number of Jewish tribes and he begins to get more converts to this new religion of obedience to these, uh, these ongoing revelations that he receives from Gabriel. He receives these revelations from 610 until his death in 632. And so for those 22 years. So for eight years he's in Medina and sure enough he gets a lot of converts and in 630, two years before his death, he comes back with an army, comes to the gates of Mecca and says, hey, do you remember me? I know you didn't wanna become Muslims before, but how do you think about it along with my 10,000 soldiers? They contemplated it for about a millisecond and decided, yes, they were gonna become Muslims. And so what Muhammad did, that's actually pretty brilliant historically, historically brilliant is through the use of military force, the use of these revelations that he'd been given, he managed to unify the tribes in the Arabian Peninsula. That in and of itself is no small political feat. So that's Muhammad and his life. Muhammad's relationships are important. He married the wealthy widow at first and then had a daughter, Fatima. He had a cousin named Ali who was one of the first people to believe him. Remember in 610, when he's 40 years old, he gets those visions, he comes back. Most people don't believe him. Ali did. His young uh, cousin believed in him. Ali grows up and has two sons, Hassan and Hussein. Remember that. We'll come back to that. After his first wife dies, Muhammad marries, and I'm simplifying this. This is not the only wives Muhammad had, but these are the ones that matter for my story. Aisha, who has, whose father was Abu Bakr. And then he had an early follower named Umar, great uh, soldier, and a follower named Uthman, terrible soldier. He was a merchant. And so when Muhammad dies, he has recited all of these revelations from Gabriel. These recitations, these oral passing on are called the Quran. The book that is called the Quran is made up of surahs, S-U-R-A. I'm gonna call them chapters because that's the way we tend to think about it. But these chapters, each one is a revelation and they go from 610 
till 632, so a period of 22 years of these revelations, and he spoke them. They weren't written down for a while, I'll tell you when in a little bit, but they were written down later and collated into this book of revelations to Muhammad. What do those revelations contain? They contain biblical stories, they contain some history, they contain commands, they contain the ways to live, the way to live your life in obedience to the God of Abraham. Some of those testimonies, or some of those commandments, if you will, are called the five pillars of Islam. These are not the only commandments by any means in Islam, but here are some five pillars, five basic beliefs. The testimony of faith, and that is the fundamental declaration. Remember I told you the fundamental declaration of faith, the fundamental confession of Judaism is in Deuteronomy 6, 4, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. The fundamental confession of, of the Christian story is Jesus is the Messiah, the son of the living God. The fundamental confession or the basic thesis of Islam is there is no God but God. And by the way, Allah is just the Arabic word for God. So I'm gonna use the English word. There is no God but God and Muhammad is his prophet. And so that is the fundamental confession. There's ritual prayer, uh, praying five times per day. You're probably familiar with the call to prayer in the Muslim world. People are supposed to then point face toward uh, basically Mecca and say their prayer five times a day. Some Shiites do three times a day, but I'm just gonna give you the big picture at this point. So five times a day of prayer. Obligatory almsgiving. And you'll see there 2.5% of your total uh, income or 10 or 20% of annual produce as there was an idea of almsgiving, uh, tithing, if you will, and that money was used to support the community. Fasting, during the month of Ramadan, Muslims are required to fast. I'm not telling you all Muslims do. There are different sects and groups amongst Islam as well. When I say Islam and Muslim, I'm sorry, Islam is the religion, Muslim are the followers, are the people who believe that. So like Christianity is the religion, Christians are the people. Islam is the religion, Muslims are are the people. And so during the month of Ramadan, for that period of time, they fast. When I say they fast, what I mean is that they do not eat during daylight hours. You must eat before the sun comes up or you can eat after the sun comes up, but you don't eat during daylight hours. And that's a month long fast. And then finally, the pilgrimage to Mecca called the Hajj. This is compulsory once in the lifetime for any Muslim who has the ability to do it. And so every year during the Hajj, you'll see Millions of Muslims descend on Mecca around a particular structure, which I really don't have time to get into in this story, but they go to Mecca and that is considered one of the five great commandments or one of the five pillars. So there are rules, there are commandments, there are laws, a little bit like Judaism in the Quran that govern all of life. Not just the religious part of your life, but all of your life. and combination of the Quran and then the successors of Muhammad ruling on these commands and laws, that body of tradition and Quranic commands is called Sharia law. And it is the law code, if you will, that governs all aspects of life. So let's talk about the succession for a minute. So what I wanna go into now is those are the basic beliefs. That's where Muhammad came from. Those are his spiritual roots. Those are his physical roots. What happened in the very early days of the succession, remember he died in 632 AD. And what happened then split Islam. And that split is very relevant today. So let's talk about the Sunni Shiite split in Islam. So when Muhammad died, there was a group of people and they were called the Shi'at Ali, and call them the Shia, and they said, Ali, remember that young cousin who was one of the first people to believe, uh, should become the successor of Muhammad because he's related. And in fact, you should always have a physical descendant of Muhammad being the spiritual and the political leader. This is something that's key to understanding. Muhammad wasn't just the spiritual leader, 
He was the political leader. So he took that army and he consolidates all the tribes in Arabia. He is not only the prophet Muhammad, he's also President Muhammad. He's General Muhammad. He is, runs the whole political and religious entity. And so those groups of Muslims who thought this is the way it should be, wanted Ali. However, the tribal traditions of the Arab tribes, and the word Sunni means tradition, said that's not how we pick our leaders. Yes, Muhammad is the one who talked to Allah. He's the one that talked to God. We've got his, uh, the Quran, if you will. We've got the recitations. He is our spiritual leader. But as far as the person who's gonna run this, like the chief of the tribe or the sheikh of the tribe, we've always chosen that, not by father to son to grandson. We've just always sat around a campfire and picked out who's the best person to do this next. And so while Ali was burying Muhammad, the rest of these guys got together and picked the next leader, caliph or successor of Muhammad, in the traditional way, in the Sunni way. And so they picked Abu Bakr, his father-in-law. Well, Ali, the followers of Ali, the Shiites, the Shia, basically said to Ali, this can't stand. We gotta go rebel. We're just gonna have to duke it out here. And Ali said, no, that is not what Muhammad taught us. We're not fighting Muslims, uh, fellow Muslims, so let it go. So Abu Bakr becomes a caliph. When he died in 634, two years later, then the followers of Ali said, well, surely now they'll come to their senses and realize that a descendant of Muhammad can be our spiritual and our political leader. Sure enough, they did it again. And so Umar, the great soldier, becomes the next successor. Umar spread, I'll show you when I get to a map. He, he took the armies of Islam, the Arabian armies, and came boiling out of the Arabian Peninsula. He starts conquering, great time in history to conquer some decadent uh, kingdoms all around them. He begins to conquer territory. And when he conquers territory, what does he take with him? He takes the Arabic language, Arabic culture, and the religion of Islam. And everybody he conquers either pays tribute to Islam in obedience as subjects, or they convert to Islam. And so he spreads the religion as he spreads the territory. Next time, they did it again. They picked Uthman instead. And so now, a lot of tension boiling amongst the Muslims as to how they should be led. Uthman was not very much of a soldier, but he did gather up all those oral remembrances of the revelations to Muhammad, and he had them written down in the Quran. And so the Quran as it is written was compiled by Uthman, basically, and he took the conflicting versions, put them all together, and you get uh, all of the, the different chapters or different revelations to Muhammad. Well, finally, when he dies, Ali becomes the caliph. Finally, he is the successor. And so his followers, the Shia, or Shiites, decide, yes, we are going to have the military and religious leaders as one, this is gonna be a theocracy. Our laws are going to be Sharia law. It's going to be the law of the Quran. That's gonna be what's legal. And everybody that we conquer is going to obey that law, either by converting or by paying a tax and being subjects of us. And so Ali starts them on that trend. When Ali died, however, and now we're getting to, so think about back here, I wanna show you. He died in 661. Well, when he died, you basically have a bit of a disagreement. And so you still have the group of the Sunnis that say, look, I know he was a relative of Muhammad, but that's nothing special. We're gonna pick our next leader as a political leader. And we're still gonna follow Muhammad and we're still following the Quran, but we're just not doing this whole church and state thing, if you will. Followers of Ali said, I don't think so. In fact, his sons, Hassan and Hussein, are the legitimate heirs. Well, Hassan got poisoned under very, very uh, suspicious circumstances. And so Hussein starts developing an army. He realizes there's no way around this. We're gonna have to fight the other Muslims that wanna do this differently. And so Hussein was on his way to Kufa, 
where he was gonna meet his army, and when he got to Karbala, Karbala is in modern-day Iraq, he was ambushed by about 30,000 soldiers of the Sunni faction. They surrounded him, they tried to starve him out and get him to confess that, look, I renounce any claim to the caliph, to the caliphate, and so you guys can have it, and he won't. And so they end up killing him and his children. Uh, one of his children was a baby, and they killed him. Uh, basically, you know, the, the son of Ali, the caliph. And so then they go put a Sunni on the throne. Well, needless to say, all those Shiites, not only did they disagree with how you're gonna pick the leader, not only did they disagree that the political leader and religious leaders would be different, now they've got major heartburn with killing the heir of their caliph. And so still today, every year, Shiites celebrate what happened, and when I say celebrate, they weep, they mourn, they remember that grudge. And this happened, by the way, in 680 AD. So just about 18 years after his death finally came to a head, and so they killed off the line of Ali. Shiites, however, don't acknowledge those Sunni leaders they acknowledge a different chain of leaders. And the first one they acknowledge is Ali, right here, from 660 to 661. And then there's this chain of what they consider to be the legitimate leaders all the way down to 868 AD to the last imam, the 12th imam. I'm telling you this because in Shiite eschatology, you're gonna hear about this 12th imam called the Mahdi, M-A-H-D-I and he was theoretically snatched up and will be brought back to the earth in the end times to lead the Muslims to conquest over all the non-Muslims in the world. So needless to say, the Shiites and the Sunnis begin to diverge. There's bad blood there, but there's also differences in organization. So let me show you in the world today. So you, you get a sense of why Muslims in general would have a a very clashing worldview with the Jews. They believe that they're the inheritors of the land of Israel. They are worshiping the true God of Abraham. In other words, there's, there's tension there because of the Ishmael-Isaac split. But there's also tension inside Islam between the Shiites and the Sunnis. This map's color-coded, and the light color are Sunni Muslim populations and countries, and the dark green are Shiite. Uh, Iran is Shiite country, and we'll talk about it in a minute. By the way, you see this little uh, Shiite dark green down in Yemen? Those are the Houthi rebels. In the, in the news, you're gonna see that there are some H-O-U-T-H-I, Houthi rebels, that are rebelling against the Muslim rulers of Yemen. They're Shiites, the rulers are Sunnis. So we're gonna talk a little bit about Iran in a minute, but just to give you an idea, Shiites represent about 10 to 15% of Muslims in the world. So Sunnis, about 85% of Muslims are Sunnis. Now there are many other groupings within this. Okay, those aren't the two, but that's the two big groupings of Muslims, the Shiite and Sunni Muslims. We're gonna come back to that in a minute and I wanna talk to you about the tension that that's brought about in the world and how those, the differences uh, between Islam and Judaism and the difference between Shiite and Sunni Muslims are shaping events in the Middle East a little bit. But before we do that, I wanna kinda of walk through the Quran a little bit and talk about the relationship of the Muslim story to other stories. In other words, how do Muslims think about those who are unbelievers, infidels, people that do not agree with them? The Quran is organized uh, not in chronological order of the recitations, but I have organized a few in chronological order. And what I mean by this is the revelations to Muhammad early have a different tone on this topic than the revelations to Muhammad later. So he begins receiving revelations in 610. He's not very powerful at that time. 
He has revelations all the way up till 632. At that time, he is very powerful and people are becoming Muslims. So this is an early surah, early chapter. And listen to this, argue only in the best way with the people of the book. The people of the book are Jews and Christians. We share holy scriptures with them. The Jews and the Christians don't believe in the Quran, but the Muslims believe in the Old Testament and the New Testament. They just don't believe they're accurate, but they believe in them. And so they feel some kinship with those two groups who also worship the God of Abraham. So argue only in the best way with the people of the book, except with those of them who act unjustly. Say, we believe in what was revealed to us and in what was revealed to you. Our God and your God is one and we are devoted to him. You can see it's very conciliatory, isn't it? It's saying, look, we do not agree. You do not follow Muhammad, uh, but we do agree in the same God. Let's go on through time. Uh, Surah 109, say this, disbelievers. So this is Muslims speaking to anybody that's not. I do not worship what you worship and you do not worship what I worship. I will never worship what you worship. For example, Muslims believe that Christians are blaspheming God by saying God is three in one. The idea of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, they believe that's polytheism, not monotheism. And so he said, I will never worship what you worship and you will not worship what I do. You have your religion and I have mine. And so you get this idea of a, okay, you got your thing, I got my thing, we can coexist, if you will. Well, as time goes on, Muhammad gets more powerful and you see a tone change in this. So in uh, chapter two, you see this, fight in Allah's cause, God's cause, against those who wage war against you, but do not commit aggression. For truly, Allah does not love aggressors and slay them wherever you may come upon them and drive them away from wherever they drive you away. For oppression is even worse than killing. So now it's like, yes, war is possible, but if you get attacked first, then by all means kill the unbelievers. But do not be the ones who start the war. You're starting to see how this moves along in time. When the four forbidden months are over, this is chapter nine, later in, in Muhammad's life, wherever you encounter the idolaters, kill them, seize them, besiege them, wait for them at every lookout post. If they repent, maintain the prayer and pray the prescribed alms, let them go on their way for Allah is most forgiving and merciful. In other words, if they become Muslims, then you men spare their lives. Notice how we went from, we just see things differently to you can attack people that attack you to now wherever you encounter the idolaters, meaning anyone that doesn't uh, believe in Islam, kill them, seize them, besiege them, wait for them at every lookout post. And so you see that through Muhammad's life, the revelations to him become more and more aggressive. And then finally, uh, this is called the sword verse. It's kind of famous, but this quote revelation was delivered in 631 AD. Remember Muhammad died in 632. Muhammad was master of Arabia at this point. Fight those of the people of the book. Now we're talking about the Muslims or the uh, Jews and the Christians who do not truly believe in Allah in the last day, who do not forbid what Allah and his messenger Muhammad have forbidden and who do not obey the rule of justice. So in other words, now it's, it's like, well, you got yours, I've got mine. And now it's fight them. Fight the people of the book because they do not believe in the true God and they do not believe in Muhammad and they do not obey the commands of Muhammad until they pay the tax and agree to submit. So if they agree to be subjects and they would pay a tax to the Muslim rulers, then they could keep their lives and be subjects. So why am I telling you this? Because this story of Islam has its roots in a very expansionist way. And I'll talk about jihad in just a little bit, but I'm not telling you that every Muslim today says you should go fight everybody, every Jew and Christian in the world and make them into subjects. That's not what I'm telling you. What I'm telling you is the Quran, the tone of the Quran, 
the later shuras, which override the earlier ones, it's called abrogation. In other words, the later shuras, the later revelations are the ones that fuel it. I want you to understand why you see Islam as being, in some cases, militant, in every case, expansionist. It is part of the Muslim story. It's baked into the idea. So, back to history. So on the Temple Mount today, this is Jerusalem. This is the big retaining wall that Herod built. And right here, there used to be a temple, right where that mosque is. That's where the Holy of Holies stood. Now, it was destroyed, not by the Muslims, it was destroyed by the Romans in 70 AD. And it was 500 years later when Muhammad came around. But shortly afterwards, remember I told you that the early caliphs just blew out of Arabia and conquered places. Well, they conquered Jerusalem as well. They took that land, the land of Palestine, the land of Canaan, the land of Israel. They took that land because it was rightfully theirs through the promise to Abraham through Ishmael. And they built two mosques on that Temple Mount. And those mosques are still there. Those mosques are the second and third holiest places. Mecca, of course, is the holy place, but the, this mosques are very holy places for Islam. And so that's kind of a sign of supremacy, if you will. Now, Islam, in terms of how it gets along with everybody else, here's an example. The Western liberal democracies have always had political issues with Islam because the way Islam, the law of... Uh, of Muhammad, the Quran, really has what the Western liberal democracies consider as very archaic views of women and other people that don't fit into the plan. But I just thought I'd show you some ideas of how in different places, uh, this woman is in Morocco. This, by the way, is another sect of Islam. I wanna give you just a quick sense that it's not just Shiites and Sunnis, these are Sufis. Sufis are Muslims who are very mystical. And so Islam, like anything that's been around for 1,500 years, you have a lot of denominations, if I can call it that. And so I want you to, to know you have the very, very strict Wahhabi sect of Islam in Saudi Arabia. That's a Sunni sect, militaristic, very, very active against unbelievers. You have the Sufi sect, which is very mystical and inward looking. You have the Shiites, which are theocracies. So you have a, a lot of diversity in Islam. One thing I wanna tell you about is, the, uh, this is a Saudi uh, royal family. So Saudi Arabia is Sunni Muslim. Remember the Sunnis follow Muhammad as their spiritual leader and the Quran, etc. but they have a king who is their political leader. You have other Sunni countries that have a parliamentary democracy. Yeah put that word in quotes, but basically they have a different form of government. In Sunni countries, you'll see very different forms of civil government, all of which are religiously controlled by the Quran and the teachings of Muhammad. The Shiite nations, of which there's only one nation, and that's Iran, combines, like Muhammad did, like Ali did, combines the religious and political entities. And so the Ayatollah Khomeini, then Ayatollah Khamenei, is the religious leader and the political leader of uh, their people. And so you see different kinds of governments in the Sunni nations. In the Shiite nations, you'll see a theocracy. And there are pros and cons to that. But in all of Islam, you have this statement that I wanna give you, uh, define this, because you're gonna see it a lot, Islamism. Islamism is the rule of Islam over the social and political aspects of life, the merger of religion and nationalism, and the struggle to establish an Islamic nation. So let me give you an example. What is Iran trying to do? Iran wants to unite all Muslims in the world, first of all, under a caliph, the caliphate, under one spiritual leader who's also the political leader. They want it just like it was in Muhammad's time. And so they want to bring all the Sunnis into the fold under the Ayatollah. 
they also want to then go and expand, as Muhammad did, to all of the non-Muslim countries. And so Iran is hostile toward Sunni nations in that it wants to gobble them up into one Islamic state, and it is hostile to those non-Muslim countries because they need to see the right way to live. And so that's the essence of what Iran's doing in the world. So you think about people like ISIS, for example, now it's very militaristic, very brutal, very violent, and not all Muslims by any means support that uh, method of spreading Islam in the world. I wanna be very fair about that. But ISIS, for example, is one that you know talked a lot about the caliphate, restoring the caliphate, the Islamic state, meaning all Muslims are gonna come together. Now that's not everybody's vision in the Muslim world, but that's an example of Islamism, bringing all the Muslims together in the world. Then jihadism is striving against the enemies of Islam. It is the struggle to establish a united Islam in the world. Muhammad had a united group of followers, all the Muslims, all the people that followed him, believed in Allah, believed what he's uh, saying to them, they were all one people politically and spiritually. Today, you have different political entities, different nations, and you have different spiritual leaders. Jihadism is an attempt to unite that. Now, to be fair, I want you to understand that jihadism doesn't just mean jihadism of the sword. There are some people like uh, Iran, like ISIS, like the Houthi rebels, who believe that it is their religious duty to take up arms and conquer those who are unbelievers. There are Muslims who believe in jihad of the tongue, if you will, meaning to go spread Islam in the world by what you and I would think of as evangelism, by speaking into the world. But this expansionist idea, uh, you see play itself out geopolitically. So let me end with that. First of all, Israel. So Israel is this tiny nation right here on this map and every country around them is Muslim of one variety or another. Iran is the Shiite nation. There are Shiites around, but that is a nation that is built on the Shiite model. Iraq, Syria, Turkey, Saudi Arabia, Egypt, etc., etc., are all Sunni nations with different kinds of governments, but still a shared philosophy of Islam. So, none of these nations have any reason, because they're Muslims, to be very friendly with the Jews. In fact, there is an Arab League combined of 22 nations. You see the flag of Palestine. If you're in the Arab League, you don't believe in Israel. You believe that that's the nation of Palestine. There are 22 nations with about 400 million people, half of them under age 25. They surround Israel, which has eight million people. And so needless to say, a lot of tension in that part of the world. The other point of tension is not just toward Israel. The other point of tension is between Saudi Arabia and Iran, Egypt and Iran, Syria and Iran, all of these Sunni nations see Iran's territorial and religious aspirations to unite the whole world. And so you kind of have a double-sided conflict. And so let me bring this to a close by just talking about the tensions in this part of the world that flow from these stories about life. Israel is holding the Jewish story. The Jewish story is not expansionist. In general, the Jewish story sees the Jewish people as being a light, an inspiration, a pointer, if you will, to God. It's not an evangelistic religion by and large. I'm painting with a broad brush. But big picture, Judaism is not evangelistic, like, oh, everybody needs to become a Jew. No, everybody needs to go this way. We have 613 laws. You don't have so many, but you still need to come toward God and you need to be just and peaceful and uh, do good to your fellow man. That's Judaism. Islam is expansionistic. And it does say everybody needs to become a Muslim. And so you naturally see the clash, not just the Ishmael and Isaac thing, 
but you also have the expansion nation, uh, nature of that. And so, interesting things happen. So, after the 1973 Yom Kippur War, uh, Anwar Sadat, brilliant Arab leader, Muslim, attacked Israel and in a sneak attack on the day of the holiest day of the year in 1973 and almost conquered Israel. Well, it turns out he ends up losing a lot of land right here in the Sinai Strip, but he restored Arab pride. And so six years later, in 1979, Egypt became the first nation to normalize relations with Israel. First time that's ever happened in the Muslim world. Anwar Sadat realized for his people to have peace, they needed to find a way to have normalized relations with Israel. They no longer trying to wipe Israel off the face of the earth. Well, he was assassinated two years later because of doing this by a more fundamentalist. 1994, the king of Jordan normalized relationships with Israel when his position was powerful enough. The Palestinian Liberation Organization, Yasser Arafat, had just tried to overthrow the king of Jordan because he wasn't Muslim enough and they wanted a territory from which to attack Israel. Well, they're all Muslims, but uh, the king of Jordan brutally suppresses that and then he goes his own way and normalizes relationships with Israel. The biggest thing that's happened since that time is the rise of Iran and everybody else is getting nervous. They see that Iran has effectively extended their control into Iraq and with their relationship with the Russians, they have effectively extended their control into Syria. You see Turkey becoming more Muslim, but they have their own schemes for the world. And so Egypt and Saudi Arabia, Kuwait, Bahrain, Qatar, all these Sunni Muslim nations are just as nervous, probably more, about Iran as they are about Israel. And Iran is developing nuclear capabilities. And while that's really bad news for Israel, it's also pretty bad news for the other Sunnis as well, because Iran wants to bring them all under their wings. And that's what leads us to the Abraham Accords. In August of 2020, you see two more nations, Bahrain and the United Arab Emirates, who are just off this map, also normalize relationships with Israel. What do you see happening? You see hopefully a wave of these Sunni nations settling things with Israel and turning their united attention toward what they see as the great geopolitical threat, and that is Iran, backed by Russia in this part of the world. So the story of Islam, just to summarize this, is another worldview that is expansive, uh, expansionist. It can be militant, it doesn't have to be militant. Uh, the Sunni-Shiite split is influencing uh, them to a great extent. The Shiites have allied themselves with, to a certain extent, China, but to a large extent, Russia. And the Sunni nations are scrambling to find allies so that they can basically protect themselves from their Muslim brothers in, in Iran. And uh, that thinking, that Shiite-Sunni split, that Israel versus Islam, Ishmael versus Isaac split, explains a lot of the background at least for what's going on in the Middle East. Well, at this point, you've gotten a sketch and kind of an overview of some of the major worldviews or stories shaping world events. And if you think that conflict is inevitable and you look at our world and you see the clashes in these worldviews, you're seeing it correctly. The cultural Marxist story embraces struggle, sees the struggle as not only inevitable, but good. And it's not just a struggle against groups, it's a struggle against all the institutions. You see expansionist Islam having as its ultimate aim, certainly in the form of Iran, is destroying all of the Western institutions and replacing them with the caliphate, with the single state Islamic structure. And so you tend to see a lot of this conflict, you see it nationally, and see it internationally. What I'd like to do next is kind of pull the curtain down on this particular story. Our goals, remember, were to understand what's happening in our world. I didn't say you'd like it. 
I didn't say that it would, you would think it was true, because these stories are not all true, but that we would understand where people are coming from. Here's where I wanna turn next. I'd like to talk about, given that that is our world, given that that is a difficult, constantly changing, fairly hostile world in which we live, how do we as Christians respond to the, the promise of God, the calling of God for contentment and joy? How does that happen in the midst of this world? And for the next few weeks, I'd like to explore that. Because the Apostle Paul, all the way back uh, 30 years after the resurrection of Christ, found himself in the middle of a world full of conflicting worldviews. He found himself in jail because of his worldview. And yet he writes this short little letter that has joy written all over it. He said, I have learned the secret of being content whatever my circumstances. And so for the next few weeks, I'd like to find out what is the secret of being content in the modern world. I'll see you next time.